Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books Network in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicole Corrado, Professor of Political Sociology at the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra, Australia, and co-host of the channel. Today, I'm talking to Alan E.S. Lumba, an Assistant Professor of History at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. Alan is the author of Monetary Authorities, Capitalism and Decolonization in the American Colonial Philippines, published by Duke University Press in 2022. The book examines how the colonial monetary and banking system undermined movements for decolonization in the Philippines while further naturalizing racial hierarchies in the emerging global capitalist order. Hi, Alan. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. Hello, Nicole. Thank you for the invitation. Yes, my pleasure. So first of all, congratulations on your new book and it's available open access. So we will post a link on the website so our listeners can download the book immediately because I found it to be an incredibly um, interesting read. So maybe we should start with a backstory. So your book, as the title clearly specifies, um, is about monetary authorities. I will say that word incorrectly throughout the <laughs> Apologies. In so it's about monetary authorities or central banks. And I think it's a fascinating focus of research because the political histories of technocratic institutions, at least from my perspective, tends to be taken for granted um, in mainstream conversations. And my sense is that the logic governing in these institutions are only systematically uh, interrogated when there are financial crises or scandals. So what prompted you to work on this topic? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, I mean, there's the, uh, uh, at first, what prompted me was the idea that uh, I should write about something that was close to home in terms of autobiographical questions. I was, um, I was actually, I, my family and I immigrated to the U.S. Um, when I was around six or around six or seven. And, um, you know, growing up, I always had a question around the, um, just the history of the Philippines and its relations to the U.S. and how, you know, on one side, the Philippines was considered impoverished and the other side, the U.S. was considered wealthy. And there was also always just the, racial component of that inequality um and for me it was really condensed into the the figure or the object of the of the dollar and so whenever we would go back to the u.s or even just with different family or um other people in the community who had to remit money so the remittance system people were always obsessed with the 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 dollar value or the the dollar relation to the peso and the, the kinds of fluctuating value um, 
and it becomes highly imbued with a kind of um, all kinds of cultural and symbolic weight as a result. And so when I went to grad school and started my project throughout the dissertation uh, process, I wanted to really look at something that was that seemed so natural and normative, like uh, money, and really interrogate it and, and think about its history, um, particularly from that angle of autobiographical angle um, and, and looking at that um, history of uh, uh, of this inequality, the present inequality in and through um, its roots in the American colonial system. And so what I was finding, as you just said, um, sort of trying to tell a more interesting story about something that's usually pretty boring, which is <laughs> um, monetary or financial institutions, all these different characters um, that that's uh, specifically these uh, people who were economic experts who tried to um, um, sort of uh, create or have a kind of authority over Philippines, uh, over the Philippines and Filipinos in and through money. So on one hand, it was an economic kind of authority based on knowledge, but it was a, around power and really um, uh, reinforcing the kind of colonial warfare and occupation that was ongoing um, in the early part of the 20th century. And so the kind of financial instru instruments, institutions, mechanisms, all of those things that were invented and, um, and formed under the American colonial period, so currency systems, uh, banking systems, all those things um, were uh, seen as a kind of um, experiment in the kind of authority, uh, a specifically colonial authority that Americans could um, use and deploy against uh, Filipinos and other colonized people. And it's a, a kind of legacy that we live with that continues to shape individuals, um, whether they're in the diaspora or whether they're still in the Philippines. And I think it's something that um, uh, still is a, opens up to more questions, especially uh, contemporary questions as we keep thinking about um, questions around economic inequality in the Philippines and in the broader global South. I, I love how this book is grounded on the lived experience of migrant workers like myself, who's always converting Australian dollars to Philippine pesos. It's, it's good to have a lens uh, to, to make sense of this um, everyday lived experience. So, in the book, racial capitalism was such a key concept, and I loved the language you used when you described how whiteness was used to prove uh, the United States' capacity to lead through monetary authorities, um, which obviously fortifies colonial relations of power. And I think you argued this so eloquently. So perhaps you can tell our listeners why making sense of Philippine history using this lens matters in your scholarship and how we understand uh, Philippine society more broadly. Yeah, thank you for that question. I think um, for me, racial capitalism is a really powerful um, lens to think through uh, Philippine history, which um, I think there's a rich, of course, a rich, very rich um, uh, tradition in terms of intellectual tradition in the Philippines of critiquing both race and 
um, the effects of capitalism uh, in the archipelago. Um, but for me, racial capitalism, which I, originally the term comes out of South African um, uh, organizers who were uh, organizing against racial apartheid and colonial settler colonialism, and then uh, became popularized mainly through Cedric Robinson's work uh, in Black Marxism um, uh, in the 1980s. Um, racial capitalism is, I think, something that speaks to both the kind of global um, form of capitalism, but also its local iterations. So even if um, a lot of uh, critiques of capitalism or studies of capitalism tend to um, look at how wealth is accumulated, mainly in the global north or in certain core or metropole sites, um, I think racial capitalism helps us think through supposedly um, histories of peripheral or marginalized people, usually the ones who are extracted from, exploited, uh, those who are colonized. And so for Cedric Robinson, it was those enslaved, um, how slavery is usually kept out of um, histories of capitalism, seen as unmodern or a holdover. In the same way, I think uh, colonial... Um, basically extraction and exploitation of colonial people and resources are usually seen as not necessarily part of the mod modern forms of capital accumulation in terms of industrialization or financialization. And so something like the Philippines, which is um, in terms of global accumulated wealth is seen as uh, on the periphery or in the hinterland or something that's not as significant as larger populations, for example, even something like British colonial India um, or China, for example, um, I think the Philippines speaks to um, really important ways that it is part and parcel of a global racial capitalist system. And on one hand, there is uh, the argument that I make in the book about um, how monetary standards, especially international monetary standards, like the gold standard and later on the US dollar standard and what we have now is uh, based on racial hierarchies, uh, mainly through imperial racial hierarchies of white supremacy. So something like the gold standard that was instituted by um, the British empire in the mid 19th century gets taken on and adopted and deployed by the U.S. in the late 19th century in the Philippines, um, as I argue, but elsewhere as well, mainly the Caribbean, Latin American, other uh, not yet industrialized economies. Um, on another level, however, racial capitalism helps uh, help me think through the hierarchies within uh, the Philippine colony. So the way capitalism obviously breaks down people in terms of um, different kinds of class formations, whether it be the peasantry or within the, the, um, the urban workers or merchants and things like that. There is a, a kind of class formation, of course, that happens through um, the kind of necessary inequalities that's produced by capitalism. But race also is always there, especially in the way that um, American colonialism is operating um, in the Philippines, specifically 
its anti-Chinese um, uh, formation or the ways it uh, marginalizes those who are seen as not quite civilized. For example, the so-called Igorots um, or uh, people who are considered not Christian. Um, um, for example, the Muslim populations. These are all ways of, uh, I guess, creating separations, but also um, uh, within a particular hierarchical order um, in order to better exploit or uh, and um, punish particular people who they see as going being against the kind of capitalist interests in the Philippines and at the same time give benefits to those that they see are within the same interests, for example, European bankers or American bankers. So that's uh, one of the, I, I, I think, some of the ways that racial capitalism has helped me think about the history. Um, and I think it's something that... Um, is a, is a pretty powerful uh, framework for maybe other kinds of stu- uh, studies of the Philippines. Yeah, you you mentioned um, that the book was also inspired by Professor Nefertita Diar's work, and I think it was fantasy production, if I'm not mistaken. And I value that book so much because it makes a, a forceful argument that the Philippines is not just a case study, as it's typically treated in my world in the social sciences. So when we study the Philippines or so-called minor countries, I'm doing air quotes here. So when we study Philippines, we understand the transformative processes of globalization from the perspective of an imaginary of a post-colonial nation and maybe describe how post-colonial nations construct a world order, uh, in this case, in your book, Global Capitalism. So Since this is new books in Southeast Asian studies, um, can you share your thoughts on seeing global capitalism from the perspective of the Philippines and Southeast Asia more broadly, how it advances our knowledge about global capitalism or maybe how it destabilizes um, dominant forms of knowledge about global political economy? Yeah, I appreciate that um, question. And of course, that shout out to Nefertiti. Yeah, I mean, my book obviously builds off of this longer tradition of, uh, or maybe not even longer, like a lot of contemporary scholars that I admire, people like Nefertiti, Tadiar, um, Vince Raphael, um, uh, Carol uh, Carol Howe, uh, but also other people in Southeast Asia like Peng Chea, um, Iwa Ong, or even um, I would reach back to someone like Pramuja, who's like, I think is one of the best. <laughs> He's a novelist, obviously, Pramuja Tor. He was a novelist, uh, Indonesian novelist, but I think his analysis of um, the kind of politics in Indonesia and the history of that politics, the colonial and capitalist politics is like astounding, astoundingly rich, obviously. But I think, I think I, again, like you just said, it is, uh, I'm interested in thinking about the Philippines as not um, simply a, a, an example of a global process, but um, I think you're right in terms of Nefertiti. All, I would say all of her books so far have been very committed to looking uh, through the Philippines as, as, um, as a way to speak to these global processes, but also that these global processes would not achieve its globality if not for um, this uh, uh, the kind of material reality of those on the on the margins, 
um, or those that are, as she would say, fall fall away or remaindered, right, of these uh, global processes. So I think in the same sense, uh, I'm interested in um, making that, I think the book makes that case. And actually, weirdly enough, um, is actually a, uh, another scholar, Peter Hudson, who uh, was a scholar of the Caribbean and, and looks at... Um, racial capitalism in the Caribbean, who took me aside at a conference once and, and basically was like, hey, it's okay to just write about the Philippines. <laughs> um, as I was like re- working through my book and maybe touching upon other aspects of, of international history. And he's like, it's okay to just work through these questions that really brought you to the, to the Philippines. And, and I think I, I really uh, appreciate him uh, setting me aside and like reaffirming that it's okay. It'll find its audience, you know? Um, but in any case, yeah, I think the, I can make a, a theoretical arguments for, for that, but I think, yeah, Tadiar um, has already made a really forceful argument for this. Other scholars, I mean, um, who have uh, been, um, and, and actually out of literature are really, um, really pushing the idea of the Philippines as um, something that isn't just um, an iteration of more universal histories. And that's something that I think um, uh, I would also agree with. Let me see. There's another question there in terms of how does it, how does it destabilize? Um, I'm actually, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I think we can maybe talk more about that, but for me, I'm actually, I don't know about destabilize. I don't know if this not the kind of work that I'm doing is destabilizing, but I am interested in denaturalizing um, certain things that we've inherited that are supposedly normal or natural. So whether it be the kind of, um, the kind of uh, uh, things in terms of the, uh, for money, for example, or the kind of, uh, relationship we have as migrants or as uh, or or as workers or the kind of uh, heteropatriarchal relationships we're in. Um, these are things that I'm interested in um, denaturalizing, and and I think uh, the Philippines helps. Um, and and since I'm a historian, I think the Philippine history really helps um, shed light on how things weren't always this way. Um, whether it be the kind of, uh, you know, authoritarianism that we're seeing now in the Philippines or the kind of impoverishment or the kinds of ways that um, the security of the Philippines is constantly threatened by larger powers. Um, This is something that we've had, I think, throughout history. You have a a kind of uh, resistance to that. And I think that's really important as we... um, um, uh, a resistance to that that's not just simply on the local level as well. It's something that where people link up with other uh, other colonized peoples, other peoples seeking liberation and freedom and you know equity. Um, those are things that I think um, the book and my work is trying to do. Um, so um, it's kind of a way to avoid the the question about destabilizing dominant forms. But I think. Um, but for me, I think uh, I, I am uh, interested in how the Philippines can denaturalize many of the um, um, assumptions we have about uh, the global south or 
or uh, these the island countries, you know, <laughs> off the continents. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the, when when I read the book, it certainly for me destabilized on some of the canons. Like, for example, when you introduce the concept of counter decolonization, I think it gives us a fresh vocabulary to make sense of contemporary realities as well, right? So maybe you can give our listeners a sense of what you mean by counter decolonization and some of the findings in your research um, that led you to develop this concept. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's something that uh, I've been thinking about in terms of decolonization as not just, I mean, as a historian, we're, we're kind of, uh, made to think about decolonization as a historical period that comes mainly after World War II, at this moment when all these different um, new nations emerge, um, whether they are aligned with the different superpowers or not. And, and we, we get a kind of history of um, Africa, Asia, Latin America, um, and their forms of nation building. Um, but I think the Philippines, although it is part of that history of, of the after World War II, it has a longer history of revolution. And we all, <laughs> whether or not you are, you know, whatever politics you have, that's something that's very ingrained in most Filipinos is the idea of the revolution and, and uh, uh, 1896 revolution. And of course, the kind of Philippine-American war um, but I think for me, I think thinking about it and thinking about the U.S. as a, a kind of counter decolonizing, uh, counter decolonizing force in the world, I think helps us um, kind of rethink uh, the position of the Philippines. Um, for me, I think we often, yeah, we often see the Philippines as something, re or not just the Philippines, but other places that are affected or shaped or invaded by U.S. empire as reacting to U.S. empire. When I think if we look at the history of the Philippines, there was an ongoing revolutionary um, energies, thinking, um, all kinds of movements um, that were happening. And although I don't really like <laughs> write about it, this book is about uh, basically counter decolonization. Um, I think that is uh, what needs to be kept in mind is that the U.S., um, the history of the U.S. and U.S. empire has to be thought of in terms of um, a kind of agent that tries to constrict um, and uh, shape peoples who are um, seeking liberation or trying to find more autonomy or gain sovereignty. And... Um, this isn't necessarily new, but I think it's something that um, kind of draws upon uh, indigenous studies, um, especially on questions around settler colonialism um, and the kinds of ongoing, the ongoingness of settler colonialism, but really the ongoingness of uh, resistance to settler colonialism. Um, and so uh, one book actually was really, or the work of Manu Karuka is really helpful who who wrote on the idea of counter sovereignty and uh, through uh, thinking about indigenous studies and um, uh, the North American context, um, the continental empire of the of the U.S. and the North and North America, and for me, I think um, 
thinking about the ways that the U.S. is uh, usually U.S. history is usually taught when it taught when it's taught uh, in its um, expansion into the Caribbean and the Pacific. It's usually just thought seen as in terms of, in some ways, an an extension of overseas, so-called overseas empire. Um, sometimes the the Philippines is seen as an exception to its overall um, form of soft empire or or soft power or informal empire. When in reality, I think it is a very violent counter decolonizing force, and you see that in the in what I would consider the long Philippine American War. And without giving too many spoilers, uh, maybe you can tell our listeners a bit about how you conceptualize or you describe how monetary authority um, is part of that counter decolonization project. Oh, for sure. I don't think <laughs> I don't think it's a spoiler, really. But, <laughs> Just um... a, yeah, a summary <laughs> to encourage our readers to read the book. Sorry, listeners to read the book. Oh yeah, um, yeah. No, it's like uh, I think for me. Um, Again, I think mo- I think money is usually seen as something that's not as violent, right? Um, this period in the U.S. Um, popularly taught, at least in the U.S. I don't know how it is elsewhere, but the early 20th century under um, William Taft and uh, Theodore Roosevelt um, are, are seen under the uh, uh, policy of dollar diplomacy, so a kind of softer form of trying to you know, softly coerce other um, nations into uh, be- becoming or coming under U.S. sphere of power. And this is usually taught throughout, you know, the kind of uh, uh, the ways that the U.S. gets the Latin American countries on the hook in terms of debt um, and financial instruments um, in order to keep away the European bankers and the European credit, right? Um but in the U in the in the Philippines, it's it's very different. Where it's it's not, I wouldn't say it's different a difference in um in in kind, but a difference in degree because it was the the U.S. was an occupying force. It it was a, a military occupation. It was a very you know um, it was a, a kind of occupation that was violent, and it would take a whole generation for the for around a decade for the Philippines to regain a kind of population that they had before the Philippine-American War, right? There was a massive depopulation as a result of the the war, not just because of the actual casualties, but the ongoing famine, the economic and ecological destruction of the war, and the ongoing guerrilla movements, right? So this was something that um, was really, uh, I think, affected the ways that uh, the mo- what I would call monetary authorities or the economic experts on the ground would justify American colonial occupation by saying we're bringing stability, right? We're bringing economic stability and a kind of progress and um, a kind of uh, desire to create a kind of, or not a desire, but maybe the promise of flourishing economically. Uh, in it through bringing a more stable currency system and a, um, eventually a banking system that's supposed to give out um, uh, or distribute um, uh, credit to those who need it, right? And there is this idea of liberal um, 
development, a kind of uh, economic liberalism that's uh, behind that, the kind of thinking that um, U.S. historians call the progressive era. Um, but there really was also a justification. Um, this is a way to justify the kind of military colonial violence that was ongoing, as well as um, on a material sense, they were uh, using the kind of uh, fund, the kind of funds and mechanisms uh, within the currency in, in order to create a new currency system. They were creating um, ways to distribute um, money faster to the uh, military operations. So they helped um, in a material sense. They were they aided military logistics. Um, uh, in, in a sense, they were helping pay for the labor in, in order uh, to occupy the Philippines, um, and so they provided a, a kind of um, in and through the establishment of these new institutions, they provided liquidity uh, at, a, at, at, at this moment that in which um, things were very unstable in terms of um, there was a vacuum in, um, in terms of uh, economic um, uh, activity, um, especially since before the, the U.S. Uh, or the Philippine-American War, it was primarily dominated by um, British and other European bankers. So there wasn't necessarily uh, so-called native capital that could really um, keep um, the economy going there. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. It's really a, a, an important overview, especially given the developments in Philippine politics in contemporary times. It certainly gives a lot of depth when people are trying to make sense of what's going on, um, you know, with a rhetoric of bringing financial stability or even in the context of security. It's, an, it's important to have a historicized appreciation of it. And reflecting on our conversation so far, I couldn't help but comment on the way you put thinkers from the Caribbean. Um, in the book, you talk about Franz Fanon, or a while ago, you mentioned Cedric Robinson from the Black radical tradition. And you put these thinkers in conversation with Philippine scholarship. Um, this may not be a big deal in your world, but it certainly is a big deal in my field, um, in the social sciences, where our theoretical concepts are still largely anchored on the experiences of European modernity. And putting these thinkers in conversation is not an easy thing to do, I find. So my question is, what advice do you have, not just for PhD students, but also for scholars who would like to break away from dominant Eurocentric frameworks and aspire to do sharp theoretical projects that build on the tradition, for example, of Black studies? I mean, Alan, not everyone is as lucky as you who gets pulled in a conference and assured that you can write about the Philippines and you can make sharp theoretical contributions based on the Philippine experience. For people like us who weren't pulled in a conference and got that pep talk, um, what advice can you um, give scholars? I think, I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I mean, that's a really good question. I think it's a really important question. Um, I think for me, I'm thankful for the kind of mentorship I got, uh, kind of community I had in terms of of writing alongside other people, um, both in Philippine studies, but a lot in Fili Filipino-American studies. Um, I think, obviously, I was uh, trained uh, by one of the few Filipinos 
I would say who does Philippine studies in the in the U.S. Um, um, and oftentimes, because of the history of Cold War area studies in the U.S., we tend to have people who are, um, you know, not not Filipinos uh, teaching Philippine studies, and usually not non Asians, for example, or non Southeast Asians um, teaching Southeast Asia, or you can even think about it in other parts. <laughs> I think the Cold War area studies model really kind of messed up a lot of the uh, internationalism in terms of knowledge production and knowledge circulation before World War II. I think there was a lot, if we look back, there's a lot of, you know, cross-pollination, especially within Asia and Southeast Asia, different kind of modernities that was happening, uh, a lot of information, whether it be radical, whether it be uh, conservative, all these different kinds of intellectual exchanges were happening. Um, I still think it's happening, <laughs> but um, I think that's the, what uh, drew, drew me to the kind of black radical tradition, um, like Cedric Robinson, but the people he talked, you know, he actually writes about are people like CLR James or um, uh, WB Du Bois, people who are very internationalist and they were always constantly talking to other people people in the radical indigenous studies too um, um, were, are always uh, talking to other people and reacting to uh, and engaging with movements in the third world. Um, and I think that's, um, I think something that's really important for um, what we're seeing now, especially how easy it is, obviously, <laughs> since, you know, you're in Australia, I'm in Canada, um, Aaron's in the, in Manila, all these ways that we can keep connected with each other and talk to each other um, um, and really learn from each other in terms of how we're thinking, um, collaborate with each other in terms of getting feedback on writing, um, getting feedback on reading things together. Um, and so for me, um, I guess... Maybe I'm just, uh, I've gotten um, pampered from, or not maybe pampered's not the right word. Um, I guess I've gotten good mentorship in terms of having mentors that have been very interdisciplinary and very internationalist um, and uh, have been really um, people like, let's say, Peter Hudson, or uh, as I was just talking about, or even Nefertiti. Um, these are people who are always really shouting out people you know thinkers in africa or thinkers in latin america um not just people in their fields right and so i think that's really um uh really significant especially as we as we are facing a lot of um um crises within the disciplines um and sometimes the the crises uh, people are trying to fix the crises by um, closing ranks and creating more sort of um, or bigger walls be between the disciplines and between geographical sites. And I'm, I'm not quite sure if that's really going to be as generative as um, in the long run, especially since, as you were just saying, I think more and more of the younger scholars um, and grad students um, especially are, are, are interested in, in, in perspectives that are much more internationalist 
in its uh, approach. Right. That's a that's a practical suggestion. Actually, you look for internationalist mentors, um, <laughs> and I'm I'm sure you are willing to be one of these internationalist oh, mentors. Oh, for sure. <laughs> you want yeah. um, and finally, Alan, what are you working on right now? Yeah, that's a. I mean, um, that's a great question. That's something I always ask myself every five years. Um, but um, right now, I've kind of come back to wanting to write a. Uh, labor history again it's a little autobiographical i i grew up in portland oregon and so it's going to be thinking through the pacific northwest of north america um and basically from the so-called long depression of 1873 through the great depression of the 1930s and really looking at this time um as 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 a way of um, thinking about multiple panics that are happening within um, the United States, specifically through this panics um, around uh, the Pacific and the, the growth of um, uh, Asian, um, I guess, you know, in terms of Asian power, in terms of the Japanese, but also the panic around the influx of new migrants from Asia Pacific, but also there's, uh, if you look at the Pacific Northwest specifically, it is all, all kinds of panics around, um, vice, uh, in terms of prostitution, so-called white slavery, um, the panics around, uh, sodomy laws, the institution of, uh, rampant sodomy laws or anti-sodomy laws. Um, so panics around heterosexuality, panics around um, radicalism. This is a hotbed of um, uh, Wobblies, the international workers of the world, uh, organizing. And it's mainly all happening around um, extractive industries and logistics. So around the shores, um, shipping, as well as timber um, and other kinds of um, uh, extractive resources. And so... Um, yeah, there's a lot going on in, in Pacific Northwest at this time, and I think that's something that I'm um, interesting in, or interest have been interested in um, thinking about, and really um, seeing what what comes out of the archives. Wow. Okay. Surely this will keep you busy in the years to come. So, Alan, hopefully thank- not too long. <laughs> <laughs> we will we will wait for the next book. Um, Alan, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Alan E.S. Lumba is the author of Monetary Authorities, Economic Policy and Policing in the American Colonial Philippines, published by Duke University Press in 2022. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This has been one of hundreds of conversations about other Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website, or subscribe to your favorite podcast app.